very trustworthy, you know, honest people, um, you know, are compelled by the anorexia to lie um, in order to protect the illness or, you know, prevent themselves from somehow getting in trouble or losing something that's valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to put you in a situation where there's any question about the veracity of what you're saying. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello! In this podcast, you'll hear the conversation that I have with Dr. Sarah Raven. Dr. Raven is a licensed psychotherapist based in Florida, and she specializes in using evidence-based treatments to treat eating disorders. In my last episode with Dr. Raven, we discussed how to find a therapist who uses evidence-based treatments for eating disorders, treatments such as family-based therapy, and also the questions to ask candidates when you are looking for a therapist. Today, we're going to talk about the tricky subject of college and university for a person who has an eating disorder. We discuss how to determine if a sufferer is recovered enough to leave for college in the first place, and the importance of postponing school or university if that person is not yet well enough recovered to go. We also talk about ways in which parents can create leverage with sufferers who are over 18, or those of us who just don't listen, and why third-party verification of recovery goals is critical for a recovering sufferer who does move away to college. Yep, in this podcast I also talk about how my eating disorder turned me into a big fat liar about food and exercise, and why you simply can't trust a sufferer to tell the truth about such things. That's one of the things the eating disorder does to us. And that's coming from me, not anyone else. It takes one to know one, right? Here's the podcast. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the um, going back to college or going to college sure. or school for an um, ad- uh, adolescent with an eating disorder. And actually, BBC Women's Hour, uh, I'm a listener, obviously, because I'm British, <laughs> and they did a podcast, I think it was Monday or Tuesday this week, about um, just this topic of children, uh, adolescents, teenagers going back to college with or if their parents are suspicious they have an eating disorder and mm-hmm. as usual I, w- I was pretty appalled by the content actually I mean it wasn't as bad as some of the BBC Women's Hour stuff on eating mm-hmm. disorders has been where they talk about it as a control issue an emotional issue <laughs> so it wasn't quite that bad they had professionals on but I found it was wishy-washy and it was still too much of well, you know, let's see what the student thinks about going back to school and and sort of putting too much power in the hands of the person with the eating disorder to make decisions. They even had a, in inverted commas, person in recovery talk on on the show and this, this person had gone back to university. But then she said later on that she'd been allowed to go back to university. She'd come out of inpatient treatment and she was still addicted to laxatives. Oh I was just banging my head against the wall. Yeah. She, that should be a complete low. That's not a gray area. If somebody is still addicted to laxatives, they are not recovered. Right. Um, but so that's why, you know, it's, it's a great time to, to talk about this. I think people are talking about it. And even very sort of respected sources are not giving great information, in my opinion. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to know right. what you think. Sure. Well, I I think that I can speak to this issue from, you know, both an insider and an outsider in the sense that, you know, I did a fair amount of my uh, doctoral training in university counseling centers. 
So, you know, I have had the experience of, you know, working with students in universities who had eating disorders and watching how the, you know, the administration handled or mishandled those situations. And then I've also been, you know, kind of as an outsider in private practice. Um, my, my office is located um, very close to one university and then fairly close to another. So I, I do tend to see a fair number of college students. Um, and also, you know, working with students who then go away to college and then seeing people maybe who've been in college and have to come home, I kind of can see it from a number of different perspectives. Um, but I, I mean, I think the, the number one um, recommendation that I would have is that um, you should not go away to college unless your eating disorder is in remission. Uh, and, and even then, there need to be safety measures in place to make sure that you stay well. Um, I, and, and I, I see that as, as pretty black and white. Um, I mean, I, well, I mean, there's the definition of, you know, what does that mean to be in remission? And that's a whole nother ball of wax. But, um, I mean, I, in essence, I think anyone, you know, with a restrictive eating disorder should not go away to college unless they're at 100% of ideal weight for months at a time and you know they're able to feed themselves um, in a variety of different circumstances and choose food for themselves and go into a cafeteria and select their meals and go grocery shopping and do all of that in a context where the majority of people around them have poor eating habits so see that's another factor is that you know the majority of quote-unquote healthy college students have pretty poor habits Um, and you know, for example, a college student will often, you know, skip breakfast and lunch and then eat a huge dinner and then snack all night and drink and Mm. which, which may not necessarily be, you know, it's obviously not a good habit, but it it may not be directly harmful to someone who doesn't have a history of an eating disorder. But, um, you know, for someone who's in recovery, it can be very dangerous to have erratic eating habits like that. Yeah. Um, um, and I also, um, personally, I, I actually went to university, which was eight hours away from where I lived in the south of England. I went to University of Edinburgh. I was probably only, I mean, I was the very early stages. I think I was probably three months into where I would guess the start of my eating disorder was, but I'd lost a considerable amount of weight. And I know that my parents were, were kind of worried about me going away. And I... <laughs> Honestly, hand on heart, think that was the biggest mistake I ever made was to go away to university. Mm-hmm. Because I came back for Christmas after that first term and I, you couldn't recognize me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I deteriorated so rapidly without having anybody, you know, I didn't have any influences to tell me, to tell my eating disorder, you know, not to go completely wild. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I exactly. do think it's very important if there's any doubt um, sufferer or or parent that you know that education can wait a bit absolutely absolutely and, and I think that's a very difficult thing for a lot of sufferers and parents to wrap their minds around because um, you know people with eating disorders tend to disproportionately be very very good students and very successful individuals and you know, for someone who goes through school making excellent grades and being, you know, athletic or artistic or musical or whatever, you know, pe- people tend to come from families where, um, you know, education is valued and um, and they see college as, as expected and, and as a right 
you know, it's their right and it's their duty to go to college right after high school. So um, I think it, it can be very challenging to um, to a student or to a parent to say, hey, wait, you know, let's let's defer for a semester. Let's defer for a year or let's, you know, spend the first year of college um, at home and go somewhere local and then transfer. I think that can be a very hard um, decision to make for a lot of people. And tell me, what do you think, is there anything that a parent can do if, like my mother, she she did ask me not to go. She didn't want me to go. I was stubborn. I was going. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's anything that a parent, because, you know, I, I, was, I was almost 18. I was an adult. Right. She couldn't really stop me doing anything. That's mm-hmm. a very difficult age for parents to try and take control, I think, of their the, the, um, daughter or son's life and say, right. do this thing. I mean, some, some children, I would hope, are smart enough or to, to recognize that if their parent is telling them not to do something that is probably in their best interests. Some of us are mm-hmm. just really stubborn. Right. Right. Well, I think, um, I mean, it it sounds like for you, Tabitha, the eating disorder hit at the worst possible time. Um, It probably would have been better if you'd gotten sick at 13 or 14, because then you would have been at home with your family. And, you know, I think so. I think that for um, for parents who have younger children, um, you know, anyone, you know, who's, you know, before their junior, senior year of high school, I like to start them young. <laughs> I like to, to start talking with parents and with patients as early as possible that, you know, okay, you know, we, we need to make sure you're in solid recovery before you go away to college. And in those cases, parents tend to have a really good sense of, you know, okay, there is no way my child's going away yeah. unless he or she is a hundred percent. Well, and even the kids, you know, if they've, been told that for years they get it too um I think that the more difficult situation would be one like yours where someone is you know a senior in high school or uh or or is already in college and then becomes sick so I think that um I I think one of the problems we have um is that you know the age of majority which is 18 in this country um you know legally um parents are considered irrelevant at that age, and um, and in you know in, in colleges and universities, they are um, very 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 hesitant to ever tell parents anything. I mean, there are, there are laws that that govern those things, um, but so I think that once you're already in college, the college atmosphere is going to work against eating disorder treatment because they're going to put you know all the power for making decisions on the student and they're going to keep parents out of the equation. Um, But, but I think that, you know, in terms of, in terms of parents, anytime a parent has leverage, which could be, you know, financial leverage, it could be logistical leverage. Um, For example, if a parent is paying for um, their child's tuition or books or um, their rent in their apartment or their cell phone bill or a car, anything like that, then I always encourage parents to make that financial support contingent upon them being physically and mentally healthy. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, and I, and I encourage parents to talk to their kids about it as a protection. So, you know, they could say, you know, look, I, I love you very much and I want to support your aspirations to go to college, but I'm only going to support you financially, logistically in going to college if you are completely well, because your health is the most important thing. 
Um, so that's so using that financial leverage is something that parents something very practical that parents can yeah. do. And, and that can also be used even if the sufferer is in denial about their eating disorder, as I was. Right. Now, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not sick. I haven't got an eating disorder, as all I ever said to my mum. And um, but you know, so but but she, if she had had any leverage like that, she could have still said something like, "Well, okay, that's fine, but I still want you to put on weight in order for you to have X." Exactly. Which would have shown that I couldn't. <laughs> right, right, right. The other way that parents can use leverage is by requiring their child to sign releases, allowing their treatment providers to communicate with them. Oh, okay. And yeah, and, and so, and that's something that I always, you know, tell parents they should require their child to do. So for, so as, as an example, um, a lot of kids that I see that go away to college, you know, will have a written relapse prevention plan that requires them, for example, to get weighed at the student health center mm-hmm. um, every two weeks, um, as an example. And then the, the, the student is required to sign a release of information at the health center, authorizing the health center to send the weights directly to me. And, um, and so, you know, that requirement requiring the parent can require that, okay, I'm only going to pay for your tuition, books, room, board, whatever, if you sign these forms. Um, so that's, that's another way that parents can use their leverage. Yeah. And I, I think also that, you know, parents just, and like you said before, if this is a parent that's the, the sufferers have the eating disorder since early teens, they're going to be well queued up to, um, the nefarious nature of eating disorders, but a, a sort of a parent in like my parents case where I was a complete comp- onset at 17 just going off to college they also were not used to not believing what I told them exactly exactly so of course that I was a child that never lied I, I right. was a good girl they weren't used to not believing me when I told them I'd eat so they did believe me when I told them I was eating they phoned me up mm-hmm. at you know at uni and they believed me and of right. course it wasn't true Right, right. Suspicion is important. Yes, it is. And, and, um, and I'm sure it made it a lot harder for your parents to even know what to do. Um, not, you know, not knowing that. And so I think, um, it kind of brings me to another important point about, um, kids who are away at college is, is I like to have some sort of stipulation where there's like a third party verification. Okay. So for example, with the, the weighing example, um, some kids will say like, oh, well, can't I just have a scale in my room and I weigh myself once a week and I text the number to my parents? Well, no, you can't because, because you know, because that's subject to being falsified. And, um, and I'll say it, you know, I usually say it in a way that externalizes the illness. So for example, I'm not going to say like, oh, well, cause you're a liar. I'll, I would say, you know, this illness doesn't lend itself to honesty and many people with this illness who are very trustworthy, you know, honest people, um, you know, are compelled by the anorexia to lie um, in order to protect the illness or, you know, prevent themselves from somehow getting in trouble or losing something that's valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to put you in a situation where there's any question about the veracity of what you're saying. Yeah. And the the bizarrest thing that I found is that, I mean, I lied through my teeth about so all the time when I, when I was sick, um, you know, if it was something to do with, with food, exercise or weight. And mm-hmm. 
it didn't even feel like lying. There wasn't even mm-hmm. any shred of guilt at the time, or it just didn't even feel like it was lying. It was bizarre, mm-hmm. but that's what the illness do- did to my brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, it completely distorts the way that you think about what you're saying. Bingo. Now, I'm a pretty honest person. Some might say I'm too honest some of the times. So for me to be able to fit the way I did without any feelings of guilt or betrayal feels insane to me now. I guess that's what a mental illness does to one. Dr. Raven also went on to further explain the importance of a written relapse prevention plan. One thing that I would say just, you know, sort of as a point of encouragement to parents and sufferers um, who want to go away to college is that I have personally found that when we have a written relapse prevention plan in place um, and everyone follows it, it's almost always effective in helping that student stay in college and stay well. The times that I can recall, and, and there have only been, you know, a few where it didn't work, um, have been times when someone dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. And um, so as an example, um, someone, uh, I, I'm thinking of, of someone that I worked with um, who was away at college and we had a relapse prevention plan in place. She was supposed to go to the student health center every week. And she did until like it got close to final exam time. And then there was this three week period where she didn't go for her weigh-ins um, during finals and she lost a bunch of weight and ended up in the hospital. Um, and then had to come home and, and stay home for the next semester. So the, the point, you know, I guess what I learned from that is that having a plan in place, you know, like having a written plan is not enough. There has to be a, a follow through and accountability on, um, on everyone's part. So now I've taken to like, okay, if I don't get the facts from the health center every week, I call them. Yeah. You know, so, so it's like, so if, you know, if so-and-so didn't show up for her way and then I call her and I call her parents, you know, so, it, so that way it, it makes it a lot harder for someone to drop the ball. Yeah. And it's especially around those exam times, the times of stress that is going to happen, yep. um, which leads me to another question. Um, I suffered insomnia uh, awfully mm-hmm. when I um, had anorexia and even more awfully when I was stressed around exams at mm-hmm. college. Uh, is it, how, how common do you think that is? And is, is, does that, um, any, any advice for that? For the insomnia? Mm. Well, I think that is um, a very common side effect of malnutrition. Um, because when, you know, when you, when you're not eating enough food, you know, the body doesn't feel like it can rest. The body wants yeah. you to be up and alert and go out, you know, to, food. right, exactly. And, and, you know, our bodies haven't caught up with the modern society that, you know, now we can just like walk to the refrigerator. Um, but, um, but so I think that's one factor. And then the other factor is just the increased anxiety and stress. Um, I mean, the, the best, the best cure for that insomnia is, is food, you know, um, refeeding and weight restoration. And then beyond that, um, there are sleep hygiene techniques and, um, relaxation techniques that people can engage in before bedtime and sort of having, um, having a regular bedtime routine and, and regular sleep habits that can help with the type of insomnia that's driven more by stress and anxiety. Yeah. Um, and do you, did you see that a lot in students in general? Is that higher in students in general than the general population insomnia? 
insomnia? Um, I don't think so. I think it's it's quite high in the general population. <laughs> and I think it's 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 high, I mean, in the general population more due to um, poor habits around sleep um, and in overly stressful lifestyles. Yeah, because my insomnia, I mean, I sleep very heavily in like a log now. Uh, you know, my, <laughs> my insomnia went with where's right, weight restoration came. But the catch 22 there is that when the brain isn't sleeping and it's that tired, it doesn't think very clearly. So the last thing it was able to think was, I need food. Sarah, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, one other thing that I would add um, in terms of the university students um, issue is that um, when a student does need to leave college and come home to focus on recovery, it can often be a really important time for for growth and strengthening recovery skills um, because I think developmentally you know once someone is 19 20 21 years old and they're you know they're away at college they have a lot more invested in their recovery than they did at 16 or 17 mm-hmm. and they have a lot more to lose and they know that they have a lot more to lose and so sometimes you know what is initially experienced as a shock that's kind of traumatic you know, being sent home from school can can turn out to be a really important milestone in recovery that that sort of um, helps the person take on more personal responsibility for keeping themselves well and helps to, you know, kind of ensure that they're always going to be vigilant about maintaining their wellness in a way that they weren't before that. Because you know? they, they felt the consequences of, of, of exactly. getting sick. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yes. that's a great point, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, like, I, like I said uh, sort of earlier on, I, I do think that going away to university was the biggest mistake I ever made. The second biggest mistake I ever made was not stopping and staying there for four years because by the time I came out, my eating disorder behaviors were so entrenched, it was much more difficult. I then had a 10-year battle. Whereas I think yep. if I'd come out for a term and nip that in the bud, I could have had 10 years back of my life back. Um, exactly. And so I just exactly. think it's so important to, to know that that is an investment rather than, yes. than anything else. Yes, it's an investment in your future. Yeah, thanks. That's a great point. Um, okay, so where can people learn more about you? Well, I, I have a website and a blog. Um, so my website is www.drsarahraven.com. And you can just click on blog and that uh, will take you to my blog. Probably, I would say the majority of my blog posts are on eating disorders and the others are on, you know, related topics in mental health. I've linked to Dr. Sarah Raven on the show notes to this episode. So you can find more about her there by just following those links. I do hope that that was uh, helpful for some of you. It's a tricky question. The notion of going away and going to college and a person that's suffering from an eating disorder. It was a really tricky time for me. um, So I hope that you can learn from some of the mistakes that I made and not make those mistakes. I'm Tabitha Farrar. Cheers. And until next time. Cheerio.